Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. How'd you guys like that video clip? It's good. I remember the first time I saw that, um, it really hit me. And I think it hit me because they were showing such excitement about something that's so familiar to me. I can't remember the last time I felt that strongly about this good news. And it's surprising, it's rare to get surprising or shocking news in this life. It's even rarer to get shocking news that's good news in this life. And I think sometimes the gospel, the the news that Jesus is risen, it's really easy to forget just how powerful that piece of news is. Many of us were together for, uh, and and by the way, in case you missed it, the uh, title of the message here is going to be Risen. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning on Easter Sunday. And we're going to look at why the resurrection matters. Because I think it's one of those things that most people know is a fact, but may not understand why it's so important, why it's so significant. I would say the cross gets most of the airtime in Christianity. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, nobody wears an empty tomb necklace around, do they? Everybody's got crosses on their pendants. But the truth is that the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant thing that ever happened. We're together, many of us, for Good Friday service. We rightly focused on the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you weren't with us, I hope that somewhere in in your own place, in your own space, you were able to get still and quiet long enough to remember that you didn't make yourself a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, you didn't get there by making a decision. You got there because somebody paid a terrible price for you. And we dwelt on that Friday in a beautiful service. And it's right for us to do that. In fact, the cross and what Jesus did on that cross is one of the great points of emphasis in heaven. One of the songs that's going to be sung over and over in heaven is this song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That song will be sung in a great ceremony where the Lamb of God is seated in the middle and all eyes of heaven are on him and there is a full acknowledgement in great joy of how worthy he is to be in that place because of what he did. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is incredibly significant and we should never underplay it But here's a truth I hope you'll remember. That if it were not for the resurrection of Sunday morning, the tremendous sacrifice of Friday would be nothing more than an amazing gesture. It's not a small gesture. It's very rare in human history that one person would willingly give up his life for the sake of others. Soldiers have jumped on grenades for their mates. People have died protecting other innocents. That has happened in history, and while it's extraordinary, it's not unique. Sacrifices have been made. Some of us are the direct recipients of tremendous sacrifices made on our behalf. 
And Good Friday represents the most significant sacrifice ever made. It is powerful beyond measure. But if Jesus had remained dead, if he had not risen from that tomb, it would go down in history as perhaps the most epic sacrifice ever. But I don't believe that that alone would have saved us. It was when Jesus rose from death that he was affirmed as God, that God accepted, he validated that sacrifice and said, that's enough. It's sufficient to satisfy my justice requirement. It's enough so that now in the light of that sacrifice, accounts can be settled. Forgiveness can be freely given because finally somebody made a sacrifice sufficiently great enough that we can move on from here. And it wasn't just that Jesus was the most amazing person who ever lived. He was God himself and the resurrection was the affirmation that this was no ordinary man, but he was God himself. Apart from Sunday's resurrection, Good Friday is just an amazingly kind and generous gesture. I don't know how to say that without sounding like I am in some way minimizing the cross. I am not at all. But it is of pivotal importance that Jesus came out of that tomb. Here's another way, maybe an illustration will help you understand it a little more clearly. Imagine you were in terrible financial trouble, and I heard about it, and I was just deeply moved for you. I felt your pain and frustration It's the kind of trouble no person in a thousand lifetimes would dig out of. And I gave you this. I blurred out my account information because I know you hackers out there will try to get my five bucks and, you know, bankrupt me. But if I had done that and put your name after paid to the order of, and I did it with sincerity in my heart, I think that day, on Friday when I gave you the check, you'd be moved. You might even weep a little because in this world that is so harsh and cruel, somebody actually cared about your problem. Someone made a move to stand with you, and that would touch you. But I don't think you'd break any speeding laws running to the bank with that check. Unless you're just crazy stupid, you would not take a million-dollar check from me and make any attempt to deposit it. It would be for you... An amazing gesture, would it not? The problem is that the bank would not validate my gesture. As earnest as my desire is for you, the bank would not agree that I have sufficient backing to make such a promise to you. Had you instead received this check in the mail, and by the way, that is not Bill Gates' actual check account number. It is his his signature, But if he had written that check to you, I think you'd run people over trying to get to the bank before it closed Friday. And you deposit it, and Saturday would be a long day. You check online, chase.com, over and over and over, and the balance would still be the same. And you'd have this lingering question, is that check for real? I know he could back it up, but is he going to? Was it a joke or is it for real? And on Sunday morning, when you log on, and probably is a bad example because the bank wouldn't do it by Sunday, I think. And you see that your balance has grown by a million dollars. 
What a day that would be for you. That in that waiting period, the promise generously made on Friday was backed up and validated on Sunday. Because that's the only time when that check matters. Both checks were equal in their intent, in their generosity of spirit, in their desire to stand with you, to feel your pain. Both checks were equally valuable on Friday as pieces of paper, but it's the backing behind them, validated on Sunday, that makes us understand how powerful this sacrifice is in the light of all sacrifices ever made in human history. What happened today that we celebrate is the most significant thing we acknowledge as Christians. That Jesus could not be kept in the grave. That he conquered death itself, which is the greatest barrier to life, the thing that most haunts us, that holds us back. So the promise made on Friday, we are made to wait in faith on Saturday, and we're allowed to celebrate on Sunday. As God says, when I make a promise, it's good enough. It will be backed up. And I want to look this morning at some of the things that happened for us because the resurrection actually took place. The first thing made available to us is life. Life itself. There's a special place in Orlando called Give the Kids the World Village. And if you guys know about this, I think some of you do, it's a very special place um, that caters exclusively to one particular clientele. They open their doors to children with life-threatening illnesses and their families. And at no charge to them, they grant them a week-long fantasy vacation to get away from all the hospital stuff, all the pain, the worry, and just be cared for, looked after, have some fun, smile again. It's a beautiful place. It was, it was formed as a result of the movement in the heart of a man who was a Holocaust survivor, a hotelier who really felt the pain of children facing such horrible sickness because he had seen death square in the face many times, and he was deeply moved. As a result of his vision and many other corporations and thousands of donors and volunteers, this place opened a 70-acre theme park resort that makes the the suffering of life-threatening illness in children just a little easier to bear. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful place, and I'm so grateful people and places like that exist. They have a budget of $36 million a year of people just wanting to see these kids smile a little in the midst of this horrible burden they're, they're bearing. And yet when I think about that story, it's also bittersweet for me. Because while it eases the pain, it doesn't make the illness go away. It's a stark reminder that when the smiles are done, the harsh reality still remains. That pain and loss, even death, are an inescapable part of being alive on this earth. We in America have a head start, a long-running head start against much of the rest of the world in trying to numb that reality and pretend it doesn't exist. But the shadow of death chases us. And when we're quiet and still, we know that you can only go on so many vacations, buy so many new items. 
at some point you get still enough to realize it's coming. The dark specter of death which covers every surface of this planet. Easter is supposed to be a feel-good message, but I can't pull my punches and join the rest of America pretending everything is awesome. Right? I mean, that Lego movie. Do you remember that song out in Nain? Everything is up. Shut up! Everything is very much not awesome. Do you realize that if you think about it, from the day you were born, you're heading inexorably, steadily, second by second towards death? That life itself is preparing to die. It's the reason I got insomnia in college, because I heard that darn clock ticking. And every tick, I was like, it's like I'm stepping towards my grave. Just one more step. Why would I waste it sleeping? And I haven't slept much since then. Death is everywhere and no one escapes it. And in this world, it is filled with death. Marriages die. Friendships die. Businesses die. Plants, especially plants given to our family. Sorry, Jared and those beautiful flowers. We're going to try, but plants die around us. Pets die. Everything dies. And in this backdrop of death, when the music can't be turned up any louder, when we can't distract ourselves enough, death invades us and reminds us, hey, how's it going? It's going to happen. And against this backdrop of death comes this amazing event, and that's why it's so significant that when Jesus beat death, it is cause for real celebration, because apart from that act, death is in fact the final song for all of us. Some of us know it. You are desperately running as fast as you can to get ahead of death. You're like the guy in the last 20 minutes of a Dave and Buster's car just frantically trying to play every game you can swipe because time's running out for you. You know that feeling of desperation. I'm not, I'm not far enough. I'm not rich enough. I haven't gotten enough. I haven't tried everything. My bucket list keeps growing and I'm just not. And you feel it. And when Jesus said, I have conquered death, It is immensely good news for people living in a world filled with death. It's the reason that in his letter to the Christians at Corinth, Paul wrote these words, Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? Do you see that? Because death had the victory for so long. It was the sting that would defeat even the greatest day. There's always that person, right, after a party, like, yeah, but you know we got to go back to work now. You know the vacation's over, right? You know that delicious meal is going to end up in the toilet. You know, And it's just this stark reality that every celebration ends, and then you're back to marching towards death. But Jesus says, no, the sting is gone. It's inevitable, but it's not the end. And when you know that death is not the end, it casts a very different light on the way you approach this earthly life. 
you suddenly find a new perspective and a different value system by which you will try to make something of the short time we have here in this life. And that's the beauty of it, is the life that Jesus makes possible for us because of the resurrection is not just some afterlife existence. It's not just what kicks in after you croak. It begins now. I remember how blown away I was when I learned this as a youth. That eternal life doesn't start after you die. It starts right when you meet Jesus Christ. Because what we were before we met him were walking stiffs. It's like the walking dead. You look like you're walking, but you're not alive anymore. And when you meet Jesus, life begins. Life that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.19, life that is truly life. Don't you love that phrase? Everybody's breathing, sucking air, having a pulse. But not everybody's having a life that is truly life. Some people have let anger, regret, bitterness, hurt, failure, so suck the life out of them that they're busy sucking the life out of everyone else. We all know a a life vampire, don't we? Somebody who doesn't like their life, and they're going to suck yours until you don't like yours either. It's hard to be around people like that. I feel compassion for them. But I've got to be careful how many hours I log in their presence. The life which Jesus makes available in this world of death is a life that is truly life if we will embrace it. It's a life not marked by this big gong that's going to ring when the time is up and so we're desperately trying to suck the marrow out of the bone, desperately, urgently trying to get as much as we can before we end. But it's a life where you can actually finally find peace. You actually become able to give more than you get. People who think this, that death is the end, they can't give anything away. Every sacrifice is a loss. It's a net debit in the ledger of life. But when you know that there's more, suddenly you can live differently even right now. And unless you meet Jesus and that life that is truly life begins to course through you, that won't be possible. But if you meet him and he gives you that life, you can be death. Look what Paul goes on to write to the Romans. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might walk in newness of life. That's even a better phrase than life that is truly life. Newness of life. That it's not just walking. It's really living in a new way. And we all know what that looks like and feels like because, like I said, you meet some people who are very much like zombies. They're marking time. They're, They're alive only technically. And there are people you meet who exude death. But there are some people you'll meet that you crave being around because when they're in the room, life feels like it entered the place. There's a real joy, a hope, an optimism, a desire, a zeal, a hunger, a wonder 
that's contagious, that feels real. And those are the people we naturally want to be around. I'll go watch the comedian Stephen Wright perform at a stand-up club. You know that guy with the deadpan, uh, I bought some powdered water, I didn't know what to add. You know, that guy, Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I wouldn't want to hang out with them. <laughs> He's like a wet blanket, this guy. After his one-liners are done, you're like, there's no reason I want to be around a guy like you. But there are some people whom God has reached into the depths of them and turned that death to life. And it's not just about forever after. It's about right now. Something is happening. And it's very attractive and very real. The fact that Jesus conquered death offers another thing to us. Liberty. We got life, we got liberty. Here's the truth. No matter what your religious stance may be, unless you are a sociopath, do you guys know what a sociopath is? It's a form of psychopathy, it's a kind of mental illness where you really do not feel any human empathy, any normal emotion, you have no normal human valuation of any other person. You're like a monster. And unless you are a sociopath, here's the truth about us. We are haunted by the wrong things we've done. And I don't know if you subscribe to the biblical definitions of what is right and what is wrong, but every person has one. That's why I can't come up to even an atheist and punch his wife in the face and go, yeah! And he's like, I guess that just happened. I'm so neutral about that. You, we know, whatever our religious stance may be, that there is right and there is wrong, and we do plenty of both. And while we're happy about the right we manage to do, we are all of us haunted by the wrong that we've done. All of us. And you might enter self-denial or self-preservation mode, and you might say, so what? Who wouldn't do it in my position? And I have a good excuse, a good reason, and we get it. I've been there. I know exactly what that feels like. In light of what I'm experiencing, who wouldn't do what I just did? And yes, you're right. As fellow human beings, we get it. It'd be easy to do what you just did, but that doesn't make it right. And you, before anyone accuses you, know in your own spirit, I'm bothered by what I just did. It haunts me. It feels somehow like a stain on the fabric of my inner being. The kind of stain where everyone goes, oh, I think you got it, but they all can still see that faint outline. You know it's there, and it oppresses us. I don't need to beat that dog any further, do I? You know what I'm saying. The wrong that we do haunts us. But you add to that picture that we are haunted also by the wrongs done against us. Some of us, from our birth, had the misfortune of being born to parents who did not care about us. I can't imagine the pain of growing up that way of knowing even one of your parents looks at you and has no affection, no concern for your well-being, no availability emotionally, not a kind word and affirmation to be heard.
So we have the wrongs that we do. And we have the wrongs done against us that have left deep scars, indelible marks, stains on us. And no matter who you are, unless you have put to death that part of your inner being that knows the difference between right and wrong, it bothers you, it haunts you, doesn't it? And it feels like a weight you've got to do something with, but you don't know exactly where to go with it, what to do with it. We're all trying something. And not all of it works. And so we come to God, and we hear a promise written in Scripture that those who place their faith in the work of Jesus on the cross can find freedom and forgiveness. But be very careful not to bypass the resurrection. Because Paul wrote further in that wonderful 15th chapter, of 1 Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Because a lovely gesture saves no one. Sacrifice in itself cannot save. But in the resurrection, real power, real authority was brought to bear so that the wonderful promise of freedom and forgiveness is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This means that if you place your trust in the risen Jesus, not a historical figure who died somewhere in the Middle East thousands of years ago, but in a Jesus who is very much alive today. He can be spoken to, heard from, dealt with, related to. This Jesus who now lives right now, that Jesus can free us. He can set us free and give us liberty from sin. Now, what does that mean exactly? It means a lot of things. At one level, I'm sure it means that it's freedom from the consequence of sin. Because we know that the wrong that we do demands justice in the same way we demand justice even from Officials who make bad calls in Final Four games. Some people can't even focus after a bad call. They just, it completely derails them. That's going to change the whole game. I can't, everything else is tainted. That's not right. It's unfair. And we can't move on. Even that level of injustice, which is so pathetically irrelevant and insignificant, can ruin a whole day. Can't it? Where are my Kentucky fans at? Yeah, that's right. Wisconsin won that game. But didn't it bother you when bad calls were made either way? And that's such a small thing, and yet it bothers us. We know that sin requires satisfaction. I can't allow it to just stand there. Something must be done. And if it stands there, it creates a barrier between me and you. Somebody just um, posted recently about how somebody who mistreated them had sent a social networking invitation. Join my network. That happens from time to time, doesn't it? But the wrong that was done very much stands in the way of any possibility of relationship now. I don't want to be in your network because that would be the network of somebody who's a jerk. 
Do you get what I'm saying? The consequence of our sin is that that unsatisfied justice becomes a relational barrier. And there's God who wants us to be near him. And there's us who want to be near God. And yet the wrong that is done unless it's dealt with stands there. Just like the umpteenth time that someone forgot to lower the toilet seat. And you fell in in the middle of the night and your butt got all white. And you're like, that's it. Can't do this anymore. And you don't even want to look at that person the next day. Something must be done. And in Jesus rising from the grave and bringing real possibility for release, did something about that barrier. And he freed us from the consequence of sin. Here's the other thing that he did. He freed us from the power of sin. Where are my sinful Christians at? Lion. Look at, okay, I'll, let me ask you a different way. How many of you are Christians? Keep, raise your hand. It's okay. okay. Now keep your hands up if you've never sinned after becoming a Christian. Just perfect moral record, 5.0 Dean's List. Never once, anyone? I don't even why my hand's up. I sinned the hour after I became a Christian. So we know that even though we're released from the consequence of sin, it still seems to have this lingering power over us. It remains, as Dexter Morgan would call it, our dark passenger. It's always sitting in that seat next to us, following us around. And I've gained a significant amount of victory over that dark passenger. I've buckled him down from time to time. But he doesn't seem to completely go away. And yet here's one thing I've learned. That a lot of what I do over and over that is wrong is because I haven't yet trusted in the great power of God to make up for those things I'm afraid of. I worry because I don't think God is in the future looking out for me. I'm lazy because I feel like if I don't rest for myself, no one will give me a break ever. I envy because I think what you have is better than what I have, and it means God likes you better than he likes me. I'm greedy because what God's given me is never enough. I'm only happy about what I'm about to get. Never what I already have. Do you get the idea that these besetting sins, which are our dark passenger, are given power because we don't believe God has greater power than what drives us to those things? Here's what Paul had to say. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you what? Safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's the wrong passage. What happened there? Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Listen to what Paul says here. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's really what we're talking about. 
This freedom from the power of sin is saying, I don't have to be a slave to sin. It's going to sit in the seat next to me, but I don't have to let it reach over and grab the wheel every other mile. I know what it feels like to be enslaved by sin. That feeling, even after being a Christian, I've been stuck there before. There are still some areas of my life where I feel very much that I'm stuck today and I need greater freedom. But here's the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. That that feeling of helplessness, that desire to say, I can't! I know what I have to do. Stop lecturing me. Don't tell me. It's not because of ignorance that I do this. I know, but I can't. Well, if you feel enslaved to sin, it's not because you have to be. That's the good news of the resurrection. I know it feels helpless, but it is not a life sentence. The first place to start is to actually believe that Jesus' victory over death means it is possible to be free of the power of sin in your life. To stop repeating the defeatist mantras that give you an excuse to choose worse. Those statements of faithlessness that say, what's the point? Nobody cares. It never worked. I've been here before. I just can't do it. I'm not good enough. It's the only thing I can control. It's the only thing that makes me feel better about myself and about life and so on and so on. It's the vocabulary. It's the lexicon of the addict who loves to say what is not possible because there is no power in their world, but there is. The power of the resurrection is a power accessible to us. It didn't just lift Jesus out of a grave. It can lift us. How does it work? Go talk to one of the pastors or your small group leader. They can spend an afternoon explaining to you how it works. But I know at least one thing. It means to ask him in the moment of defeat for help. Not to complain, not to accuse him. Where are you? Why aren't you helping me to say, help me, help me. Don't ever stop asking, help me. And when you fail, you keep asking, help me. Don't ever turn an accusing finger to God who loved you enough to rise from death and say, why don't you help me? He will. You need to ask and never stop asking because that power is very real. It's even power for freedom over the sins committed against us. He says to you, those things that left scars don't have to hide you or hold you or define you any longer. You can actually move on now because I've broken the power of other people's sin over your life. It's a process and a journey, but real freedom is possible. So let me move to my last thing. I've covered life and liberty. The last one should be the pursuit of happiness. But it's not going to be. It's lordship. I saved the, uh, the big ripoff for the last, right? <laughs> what kind of gift is that? Lordship. Let me explain something to us, okay? Let me say it this way. Through Ragnar Lothbrok. I've been obsessed with Vikings since boyhood, but lately I've just been reading a string of Viking novels and watched every episode of History Channel's Viking show. And and yes, there are some historical inaccuracies, blah, 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 okay. But here's one thing I love about Vikings. Their kings were not sniveling politicians who were good at playing the game. 
They weren't the guys who sat on the throne and go, you there, go die, you there, go die. They were guys who got to be king because they kicked some butt. They stood in front of the line and said, stand behind me, and they started hacking their way through the battlefield. They didn't send men to die in battles they wouldn't fight. They won their, their authority and their title the hard way, in the trenches where it counted with the people they led. That's what I love about the Northmen. It wasn't some sniveling, conniving guy going, hmm, that's good, check. Oh, I have checkmate in three moves. It's not one of those guys who in safety manipulates the game. Thank God we don't have a leader like that in Jesus Christ. I'd be so hard-pressed to be a Christian if our king was like that. I'll risk nothing, but I'll ask all of you to martyr thine selves for my glory. I couldn't follow that guy. I'd almost say I'd rather be where you're not. Every one of us lives under authority. Just, uh, I'm not going to out everybody, but just maybe with a subtle nod of the head. How many of you are under authority at work of somebody you really don't respect that much? <laughs> Nobody on the harvest staff better be, just check everyone, all right. Just checking, just checking. The truth is, like it or not, every one of us is under authority. When you're a ball player, you're under the referee's and the coach's authority. You may want to play, but if the coach sits you, you're sitting. You may swear you didn't hit the guy's hand, but if the ref saw it, he'll blow his whistle. We know what it is to live under authority, but many of us know what it is to live under the authority of someone whose authority we reject at the heart. Because I don't see in that person any qualification for that authority. That's why I think lordship is a gift. If Jesus offers us his authority as one whose authority we can joyfully embrace and accept, that is a gift in this life because no one is free of authority. You can pretend to be, but you can't. Even the militias in Michigan like it or not, whether they have blurred their eyes and plugged their ears and went, blah, 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 and they burned their social security cards and whatever, they are still under authority. And if they really run to follow the law, the government will remind them that they haven't carved out this land on their own. Nobody lives apart from authority, but many live under an authority that does not deserve to have so much power over their lives. The sad part spiritually is how many people have chosen an unworthy authority and served it all their lives. Some people worship another human being who has broken their heart and never given them satisfaction. Some people worship material things that rust and die and break and get updated. Some worship a career serving a company who would not bat an eye or visit them on their deathbed, who the year before retirement will play games and let them go just to save a little pension money. That's the world we live in. And yet, again and again and again, we see people worshiping at the altar of food and drugs and drink and success, only to find that those masters hate their guts. 
seek only their destruction, are not worthy of such worship and devotion, and will not be there for you in your hour of need, and yet voluntarily we worship at their altar. What a gift it is that Jesus Christ proved himself a Lord worth following. Because I've got to follow someone. And I'm so thankful that my God is the guy I hang out with. I mean, just think about it, because I don't know if any of you have done this, but I've read all the major holy books. That's one of the nice things about a seminary education. They don't just bamboozle you with Christian stuff. They force you to read what the Hindus read and the Buddhists read and the Muslims read and even what the atheists read. And I can tell you that the deities and the ideas represented in all those places, I wouldn't want to spend an hour sitting next to on a plane. Just wouldn't. But our God is a God I like knowing. He's a leader and a king I would gladly follow because he actually cares about me and he cares about you. He hasn't sent us to our deaths from the safety of a tower. He has fought in front of us and even for us. And he won the battles we couldn't win for ourselves. Jesus testified in John 10 that he lays down his life for himself. No one's forcing him. And he says that the Father had given him authority to lay it down, and to pick it up again. In the resurrection is a clear demonstration of power that Jesus had. He fought in the front lines, and with power he won. But that power was an extension of his authority. And later, after he'd risen from the dead, here's what he said to his closest friends. Guys, I have been given All authority in heaven and on earth. That's not just a preamble to the Great Commission. It is one of the most profound statements in Scripture. It is what indicts American Christianity more than perhaps any other statement in Scripture. That this Jesus whose name we throw around as an expletive, you turn on a TV or watch a movie, you rarely hear the name Jesus spoken of in worship. It's always Jesus. It's so sad. But this name is the source and center of the greatest authority in the universe. There is no authority greater than his. That is a foundation of what it means to be Christian, is to recognize that the God we worship is the greatest authority there is. He doesn't say those words as a tyrant usurping power. But he's giving that to us as a gift to rescue us from every other master that has no right to have so much power over us. Here's why I said that statement indicts American Christianity so much. Because I think the American church, more than many others, is filled with Christians who are so self-determining. We decide everything for ourselves, don't we? Where will I live? Where will I be tomorrow night or next morning? How much will I give to this? How much will I spend on that? 
How will I raise my children? Where will I work next year? We, more than any other place, I think, where Christians gather, are among the most self-determining people who follow God. But the authority of Jesus stands against that and says, if you follow me, you must follow me. That's where your life will be found. Don't negotiate with me. Don't decide everything for yourself. I am ready to lead you if you want that life that is fully life. So where do you find yourself this morning? In front of the risen Jesus who is alive and very much in authority today? Do you find yourself determining all of your own steps? Feeling even a little threatened by language like this? Whoa, whoa, your sermon was all right till just now. Now you're messing with my personal space. Back up. I get that. That's an uncomfortable feeling. But it still remains to be said because the Bible says it. Jesus himself said it. All authority has been given to him. And that authority was sealed when he walked out of a grave and demonstrated himself to be God. How do you relate to this king who cannot even be defeated by death. As a follower of Jesus every day, is that the flavor of your followership? Joyful submission to a worthy king. I could stretch this out a little longer because the seeds guys are still playing, but I'm going to give us a little time to reflect. The cross is powerful, but thank goodness for Easter, a Sunday every year when we get to really reflect that our God is very much alive today. So let me ask you a few questions as you go into a time of reflection and prayer. Do you feel very much dominated by this world of death? Do you feel it? Are your advancing years creating fear deep in your soul as the last day looms closer and closer? Are you marked by the death of things you loved, things that once brought such joy and are no longer there? That's the world we live in. It's a death world. And if you feel more touched by that death than you want to be, here's the good news. The resurrected, risen Jesus brings life out of death. That life is very much available to you today. Do you feel enslaved, powerless? Never mind the accusing fingers and the rolling eyes that condemn you. What about your own internal voice? Do you know that you're dying you're in bondage to something that you're not powerful enough to break free from these feelings to break free from the things that are etched in stone in history that cannot be undone do you feel enslaved because here's the good news the risen Jesus has real power to set you free
Are you lost? Are you trapped under the thumb of a lesser, unworthy master? Enslaved to something that hates you, that has never once loved you back, and yet you cannot seem to escape. Here's the good news. The risen Jesus is the greatest authority in the universe. What he says must die, must die. What he says must live, must live. What he says is possible, is possible. And nothing is impossible for him. If you're lost, if you're enslaved to a lesser God, the good news is that the risen Jesus can be followed today. Joyfully. And he wants to lead you with great respect to a life that is truly life. One that doesn't feel like an urged desperate panic in light of impending death, but brings you to a place of real peace right now. Man, how he wants that for each of us. So I'm going to invite you in the next minute or two to be quiet and listen for God and say things to him that you feel led to say. And I'll come close for us and we'll have some songs. Jesus, because you conquered death, we're talking to you now not as the memory of a man who is languishing in a deep tomb in Palestine somewhere, but as our Savior and our King who is very much alive and present in this place right now. And I pray, Jesus, that today through this message and through your ongoing pursuing witness throughout the day, you would stop being an idea and start being very much alive and present for each one of us. Don't stop revealing yourself throughout this day. Surprise us at least a dozen times today to see you in unexpected places, to sense you, to feel you, to hear from you. I pray especially for those who have never known you this way. Open their hearts to you. How you want us to know you and to lay hold of this newness of life. A life that is not a desperate running from death but a life of peace that is truly life. Would you grant it to each person in this room? Thank you for winning and for giving that victory to us. We pray in your great name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.